I just thought it appropriate that the topic being grace and this being also Martin Luther King uh, weekend, we'll celebrate Martin Luther King's uh, birthday on, on Monday, I just thought I'd start the sermon out with a, a quote from Dr. King. It says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Last week, as I said, we talked a great deal about grace. And one thing that uh, I try to communicate is that grace, a, not simply an intellectual assent and understanding, but a heartfelt, um, heart-embracing awe and wonder and gratitude towards God's grace is absolutely essential, absolutely essential to the Christian walk as, as believers. We discussed how God is a, is a never-changing God, that God is the, uh, the God of the Bible is the same uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that uh, while we know a great deal, read, read a great deal about the topic of grace in the New Testament, God has always revealed himself as a gracious God from the very beginning, a God uh, merciful and kind, a, a God uh, compassionate and slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love. We read about that throughout the scriptures, increasingly revealed and ultimately culminating in the great act of grace offered to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the pinnacle. He is the epitome of, of God's act of grace in this world. And so he himself, by his own presence, his incarnation is a profession, is a, is a statement, is an act of, of God's amazing grace to our world. We also talked last week about the, the presence of this notion and, and domination of, of the world by, by the ideas of karma. Uh, it was offered to us by the great Irish theologian, uh, Bono, if you remember. My wife said, who's Bono, you know, or who's Bono? And, 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 I, and I'm saying, okay, so he's a rock band musician. He's the lead for a band called U2, in case there's others out there that didn't know that. But anyway, um, so anyway, uh, he, he, he talked about this idea of karma, and I think I, I got a lot of resonance. I got a lot of feedback that everybody else could also appreciate that, yeah, our world is performance-based. It's all about give and take. It's about I do something, I get something. Tit for tat. You know, uh, we, we, you know we talk about earning. We talk about, you know, in, in our professions. In our, and, and ultimately, it finds its way in religions of this world. And that is what makes it unique to um, Christianity. We talked about how grace comes and, and, and upends. It turns karma on its head, right? We talked about that. And... Um, we emphasize that, that grace uh, is something that God does. So it's not something that we do. Unlike what happens with karma in this world, grace is entirely initiated and given to us as a gift by God. And so that all that we bring to the table is our need, our desperate need to the table. And so we, we concluded that that in fact, if we really acknowledge it, and it is our state, it is our sad, sad predicament that we are all beggars, that we are all poor, that we are all lame and blind and crippled. We are fatherless and illegitimate. And it's only in Christ that we find that purpose, that we become adopted children and, and, and we are freed from that situation. So this morning we're going to we're going to turn a little bit, still on the topic of grace, but we're going to talk about why do we resist grace? Why do people reject grace? And why do we shortchange 
the gospel of grace. So we're going to turn to our first reading. That was from Matthew 19. And by the way, I thought my brother John did a great job this morning. He comes to me and says, hey, Dave, you got a lot of readings here, you know. And I, you know, I told him, but yeah, but it's, not in, it's all in English, right? It's not, it's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. And, uh, so, and, they're, and they're, really, they're really wonderful stories. I, you know, I love the stories in the gospel. Like we did last week, I really only brought forth uh, uh, stories and, and, and um, uh, parables that, that came from the gospels from our Lord Jesus to talk about grace. And this week as well, we're only going to focus on, on scripture that comes from the gospels. So the first one is from Matthew 19. And in this story, um, we have the, uh, it's the story of the rich young man that's approaching our Lord Jesus. And... Um, and, and what we get from the story right away is this, this, is, a, this is a man that's, um, he's, a, he's a doer. You know, he, he, you know, he's religious. He wants to do good. He wants to do God's will, but he's a legalist. <laughs> he's trying to check off his list, check it twice, and he wants to make sure he hasn't missed anything. I mean, he is interested in eternal life. He comes to the Lord, what must I do to uh, earn eternal life, inherit eternal life? And, and the Lord Jesus starts giving him the litany of all the commandments from the Bible, and he says, all these things I've done, what else? As if to justify himself, all these things I've done, you know, look at how good I am, what I've done. But, you know, the, to give the guy credit, you know, he's not, he's not displaying, at least I don't see it in the Scripture, you know, kind of the pharisaical attitude, this, the arrogance, and the one that the Lord gave rebuke to. You know, in fact, the Lord was, you know, he says, well, okay, you've done those things, but one more thing you must do. You sell everything and come and follow me. So he actually invited him, come follow me, come follow me. A lot of times the scripture, the way it's preached is, and rightly so, because the scripture that follows this talks about, you know, the uh, difficulty of a, of a rich man going, you know, getting into the kingdom. It's like a camel through the eye of a needle. So a lot of times the, real, the focus and emphasis is on, on riches, on money, and how, how that can be a great impediment. But, you know, the thing is, I, I would submit to you that that sometimes a lot of our sins uh, that, are, that are manifest a certain way really are just symptomatic of something more deep, a deeper sin. So I believe that his occupation with wanting to, to have his riches was actually symptomatic of something greater. You see, I think that he realized that following Jesus and selling all this would cost him it would cost him, not only in his money, but it would cost him in his, his self-determination, in his self-sufficiency, in his independence. He would have to submit to somebody. He would have to give up all his life in order to, to receive this great gift. And he didn't want to. It was too great a price for him. Too great a price for him. Grace, it's interesting if you think about this, grace is always given from one in a stronger or superior position to someone in a weaker, inferior position. Grace is always given from someone in a stronger, superior position to someone who is weaker or an inferior position. Think about it. Think about that. When you receive something from somebody, it's, 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 it's a need, you know? It's, or somebody might have something that you don't have. Well, this becomes a problem. It became a problem for the rich young ruler. It becomes a problem with, uh, with people in our world. It becomes problems sometimes with us. 
The problem is that we can sometimes find it repulsive. I mean, we may not use that term, but really we, we, we don't like it because now I, I owe somebody something. I have to, be, I have to acknowledge my, my need. I have to humble myself. I have to declare that maybe I'm somewhat dependent on somebody and I need help. I actually found a scripture that, that I thought was really, was, was really uh, interesting or really uh, touched upon this point. It says, we don't want to depend on anyone and submit anybody, as I said. In Romans uh, 10, uh, the Apostle Paul says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, they didn't want to come under his authority. They didn't want to give up their life. They didn't want to declare that I'm dependent. I have nothing. I'm desperately in need, and I need your help and your mercy. They did not want to declare that. You know, recently I went to uh, uh, back home, and this really came to the fore. Uh, when I, had, I went back home to, to uh, try and help my father, who was undergoing chemotherapy, and his, his wife suffers from advanced MS, so, you know, they're, they're advanced in age, and, it, and it's, um, it was, you know, it's a, they, they needed help. They really needed help. My dad tended to take care of, of his wife for the most part. She, she, it's really hard for her to get around. She does use a walker, but it's, it's tremendously laborious. And so I go home, and um, my, the thing about my, my dad and his wife is they're, they're strong-willed people, independent people. They've earned a lot in their, in their lives based on their hard work and, and efforts. And, and I get home, and I'm trying to help them. You know, my, my dad can't do anything. I mean, he has no energy. He can't get off the, off the recliner. He can't help his wife, and, and yet he's trying. And I struggle with him for like the first two days, trying to bring them water and trying to bring them food and make them, make them dinners and, and help them to their beds and their bath, whatever. And they wrestled with me. Finally, they gave in. Because I think they finally realize we are desperate. We do need your help. And this is human nature. We don't want to. How many times have people offered you help and you struggle with that? Anybody? Anybody? I know I have. You know, somebody say, hey, can I help you with that? Oh, no. I'm good. I got it. In our, in our second reading, we get another uh, example of rejecting grace. And this one is the, is the parable of the, of the great banquet. And uh, in this parable, the, the master of ceremonies says, I'm going to go invite all my friends to this fantastic banquet. I mean, it's an amazing banquet. Invite all my friends. Send out the invitations. Call them in. And one by one, they all start making excuses and saying, you know, I'm just too busy. I've got other priorities in my life. Other priorities. So the master gets really upset, it says. It says he got angry, and he says, okay, if these people don't recognize how generous and how gracious and, and how great their, their need is, you know, for something wonderful like that, then I'm going to give it to somebody who will recognize it. And I'm going to go invite those that, that have nothing and who are desperate and who can come with humility before me, who are hungry and crippled and lame and blind, those people will certainly say yes, and they do. And so what we see here is that uh, this, this manifestation in rejecting grace is that sometimes we will find people that are too busy, too preoccupied with all these priorities, and there is something also deep, more deeply seated here going on. 
And that is they don't recognize their need. What we will encounter is that many people in this world will consider themselves pretty decent human beings. Pretty good. I'm a pretty moral person. I'm a secular humanist that's a very moral person. And I don't need anything. I, 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 I do really good things. I go and contribute I, I, uh, at various charities. I go work at the soup kitchen. I do all kinds of things. I'm a good person. I have no need for a savior. And so <clears throat> we turn to the last scripture. The last scripture, I think, gives us a little glimpse of, um, of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called uh, cheap grace. Cheap grace comes from Matthew 18, 23 to 34. And in this, in this scripture, we, um, we find that uh, there's, a, there's a, a master who is owed an, an exorbitant amount of money by one of his servants. Just to put it in today's terms, you know, that 10,000, I think it's 10,000 talents, is equal to about $6 billion today. How many of us can pay off $6 billion? You know, I mean, that's the point of the story, right? The point of the story is it's just so incredibly large, it's impossible to pay off this debt. Impossible. And so the master says, well, uh, you know, well, in fact, I'm sorry, before we get to that, the servant, he recognizes his desperate need. He recognizes, oh my gosh, I need help. He falls on his knees and he says, imploring the, the master, have patience with me, for I, you know, I will pay you everything, which was a ridiculous statement, right? He could never pay that back. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But then that servant left there, and he went out, and he, and he found the, this other guy that owes him some money. And he owes him 100 denarii. What is that? It's still a large sum. But in comparison to the $6 billion, it's a lot smaller. It's about $600,000, they estimate, today. I mean, we conceivably could pay off $600,000 if you really kind of worked at it, you know? I mean, I don't know, after a long time. It's still a lot of money, but, but, it, but it's supposed to show this comparison, right, between the extreme of never paying it off. And so what does this servant do? He says he doesn't in turn give the guy pity and, and grace and, and forgive him the debt. He says, no, 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 you're going to jail. And when the master hears about that, he says, that was completely unsatisfactory, and I'm going to take you and throw you in jail, right? And so <clears throat> what, we, what, we, what we see here is that, as I said, this servant, he understood his desperate state. You know, unlike some of these other, like the prior uh, story where they didn't even recognize the, the need, and there's people amongst us don't recognize the need, this guy did. He recognized the need. But the difference here is that what, what was motivating him it was the heart motivation that was the issue here. See, his heart motivation was about saving his neck. His motivation was about self-preservation. It wasn't about remorse. It wasn't about regret. It wasn't a, a heart of sorrow and a heart of what we would call repentance. It was just, God, get me out of this, or Master, get me out of this situation. Now, a lot of um, people would um, argue, and I think rightly so, that, that this, 
this story probably points to um, uh, an unsaved person. You know, it's, it's trying to illustrate, you know, uh, a person maybe unregenerate who's ultimately excluded from eternal life. But the question is, does this, does this at all speak to us as, a, as believers in Jesus Christ? Can, can this story in any way apply to us in any way? And I would argue it does. Last week we talked about, and we've said this, and Pastor Jeff keeps telling us this week after week, is that we have to continually come to the fountain of grace. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We have to stand by the cross of Christ constantly every day, lest we veer off into karma. And we soon forget the joy of our salvation. And we forget how indebted, how poor, how impoverished, how desperate we were. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of that. Remember, I was saying this last week, let's remember, let's meditate on this this week, how much the Lord paid for us. And let's remember that every day because we can, we can grow indifferent. And this has consequences to us as believers. And I'll give you three things that I think are a consequence. One is, it will affect how we worship. If we come in every day and we have not been to the fountain of grace, if we have not been reminding us of ourselves of, of the great price that our Lord Jesus has done for us, when we come in, we can come in with an indifferent attitude and heart. We can be very lackadaisical. We can be, as the Lord says, lukewarm. It can affect our worship. It can also affect how we love the body of Christ, how we serve the body of Christ. It's born out of the same thing, right? So if we, if we don't have this wellspring of gratitude and awe and wonder at what has been done for me, you know, I remember the, remember the woman that was, well, that was uh, anointing the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus says, you know, she, uh, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. It's only because she recognizes, recognizes the depth of what she's been given that she is loving much. So when we come into this place, we want to serve one another. We want to care for one another. We want to give grace to one another. We can look down on one another at times. We can judge one another in the body of Christ. That's because we aren't standing close to the cross. And lastly, I would tell you that when we don't stand close to that cross and we aren't reminding ourselves of the great, great gift and great sacrifice of our Lord, it will affect how we treat and look at and respond to and love or hate people outside of the community of faith. This world needs light. This world needs love. This world needs grace. When Billy Graham was visiting the former Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War, uh, this was during the time that Brezhnev was the premier, he went over there, and uh, as we all know, Billy Graham is just, I mean, certainly he's got a prophetic, prophetic voice, but he exudes the aroma of Christ, in my opinion just a genteel, gentle, loving, kind 
man and spirit that represents the Lord quite well. He went over there, and uh, people were expecting him to just lay into the, those Soviet communists. But he wasn't. He was, he was quite the contrary. He was, he was just respectful and kind and so forth. And he returns to the United States, and he is assaulted by leaders in the uh, evangelical community, lambasted for not being a stronger prophetic voice to those atheistic communists. And one uh, critic took it so far as to say, you have set the church back 50 years. And this was Billy Graham's response. Graham listened, lowered his head, and replied, I am deeply ashamed. I had been trying very, very hard to set the church back 2,000 years. <laughs> we love Billy Graham. I love Billy Graham. As we mentioned earlier, we are in the midst of our Who's Your One prayer initiative. And uh, so we are approaching the throne of grace and calling upon our Lord um, to intercede, to touch hearts of those that are around us, those that we love, those that are in our workplace. We've been calling upon our Lord as we go out on the Pray and Go uh, initiative, as we go into our communities. We're asking our Lord to retake these communities for his kingdom's sake. We're saying, you are the heir of all things, Lord Jesus. We are your co-heirs, Lord God. We are asking you to change the atmosphere. Change the atmosphere. The atmosphere in this country, as you can all attest to, is poisoned. It needs changing. It needs the aroma of grace to permeate all places in our communities and our society. But as we pray, brothers and sisters, we pray for the other ones, we pray for our communities, I encourage you also, with me, to pray for ourselves to pray for the Lord's protection over our hearts and our minds that we once again won't be attracted to, that that insidious, creeping tendency to go back to karma will not happen, that we will be ministers of reconciliation, that we will be ambassadors of grace in our communities. As Martin Luther King said, the world does not need more darkness. It needs light. The world does not need more hate. It needs love. We are distinctive because we are people of grace. Christianity is distinctive because we serve a God of grace. This world... This world needs to hear the gospel of grace. But it so much also needs to see the gospel of grace. I'll close with this. This is a, um, a quote from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. 
If the world despises a notorious sinner, the church will love her. If the world cuts off aid to the poor and the suffering, the church will offer food and healing. If the world oppresses, the church will raise up the oppressed. If the world shames a social outcast, the church will proclaim God's reconciling love. If the world seeks profit and self-fulfillment, the church seeks sacrifice and service. If the world demands retribution, the church dispenses grace. If the world splinters into factions, the church joins together in unity. If the world destroys its enemies, the church loves them. Do you want to be part of this church? I know I do. I know I do, and I know this world desperately needs it. 